Hey everybody, welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithleday, I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Thurms Matt Court. How you doing? I'm well, coming down off the uh, post-Valentine's Day glow. Uh, well, it sounds like uh, you had a thrilling time. Uh, and definitely uh, was was not intrubulated by forgetting about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I it's one of, I, I, honestly, I was going to say it's one of the lower key holidays because we run into a situation where it's Christmas, Valentine's Day, birthday, anniversary, all within you know basically weeks of each other. So um, you know, at some point, something's got to give, and that's what gives. Well, at least Valentine's Day is predictable because it's the same day every year. Yes. At one point, we were scheduled to record a podcast, and then you contacted me about 12 hours before we were supposed to record and said, hey, I forgot today's my anniversary, and uh, <laughs> so uh, there's going to be problems in my yeah, house. It's, it's, a, it's a higher priority item somehow than uh, recording the podcast, as hard as that probably is for people to believe. Yeah, so that's why we're recording on a Wednesday. Um, the, uh, I figured we'd, uh, skip talking about women's basketball this week, um, largely because, uh, we just wind up screaming about it, uh, some more, like see the last three weeks in which we just talked about why can't they make a basket? Um, but Slurms, you wrote, uh, an excellent article about, uh, the softball teams, uh, trip down to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, uh, to start out their season. They played some really good teams. Um, they did pretty well. Uh, they won the majority of their games, um, uh, against a pretty stiff competition. Um, I thought that there, you know, there was some good stuff and there was some bad stuff. I thought there were some promising things, some stuff to work on. Um, what was your overall impression of, uh, softball team's trip down to Mexico? Yeah, I thought they did fine. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's hard to say, well, it's early in the season and it's early in the season for everybody. So I think it'd be really easy to say that actually. It, it's easy, but it's like, it's not really a reason why things go well or they don't go well i think softball is a lot like they talk about major league baseball where the pitchers are ahead of the hitters for a while or vice versa um in some instances here it's you know i think the pitchers have the ability to work in kind of similar circumstances to what they're going to face when they go outdoors when they're only pitching indoors and you can go out and pitch you can set up a, a you know softball diamond and a circle and go out and pitch in normal conditions even over the winter time if the rain isn't too bad but uh, the hitters on the other hand it's it's completely different hitting indoors hitting off a machine even hitting off live pitching inside a building is different than if you're outside in a, in a game situation. So I think typically the hitters run a little bit behind anyway, the pitchers early in the softball season. And we, I think we saw a little bit of this, uh, this last weekend, although again, that should be something that's generally even across teams. So it's not really a reason. I don't think why you would do better or worse. It's just uh, who, who's able to adapt to the outdoors quicker than than the other team and i thought oregon did you know i mean they were competitive in every game even the the game against oklahoma state which they didn't did not uh, play well offensively at all uh, they only gave up three runs which is i mean it's three too many but still they only lost the game three to nothing well, considering i mean oklahoma state's one of the best teams in the country yeah, like they're, exactly. they're one of the odds on favorites to win it all this year like right honestly in a loss that might have been their best performance of the yes. of the entire weekend yeah certainly i think defensively and and even pitching wise to a large degree i thought they they looked fine in that game. I, I wouldn't say, oh my God, you know, they're just unable to deal with a team uh, of Oklahoma's, Oklahoma State's offensive strength. It's not true. They did deal with it, you know, reasonably well, I thought, um, that day. And and uh, and then in the other games, you know, usually they generated runs, um, not, again, some of the problems I think that they had last season uh, of, you know, pitchers not being able to get out of trouble and, of, you know, the hitters not being able to string together enough uh, positive at-bats in a row to, 
to score runs in bunches. They'd get one run or two runs, and then that was it, or in many cases, no runs. Um, there, there was some of that still going on. The, the really interesting thing that happened is I think that Coach Lombardi was more willing to pull pitchers quickly if they were getting in trouble. If somebody gave up a, a walk and a, a passed ball or a, a, a hit hit by pitch and a double or something like that, she would pull that pitcher after a couple of bad plate experiences, where in the past, last year, she, she sort of would stick with them. And some of that, I think, has to do with probably having more she had a pretty tiny effective yeah, bullpen pitching last year. Yeah, it, exactly it, so it definitely seems like that was a real off-season effort in the transfer portal to pick up you know more pitching help and like yeah i was really glad to see yeah that was a big point of criticism i had for lombardi last year and, and i mean really it was the big really only problem with the softball team last year was you know just the you know pitching problems um, yep. some of them were understandable. Some of them were head scratchers, but it was like, it was really what was holding them back. And so I was, you know, pretty happy to see Lombardi much more eager to make those changes. I was glad to see you note it in your article. It definitely caught my attention to read that. Um, on the other hand, it was pretty distressing, you know, right out of the bat, you know, right out of the gate in their opener against Maryland, like that she had to, you know, because Stevie Hansen. Yeah. You know, old reliable, although weird right. to call her old because she's, you know, she's basically, <laughs> she's, yeah, exactly. She's, she's just started. a true sophomore. <laughs> um, but like, God, she started out terribly. Like yeah. she hit two, she, she walked two and she hit two batters, yeah. which is like a, a, out of the first five that she faced. Like that's I, like, that's a, that's pretty cl- Like other than giving up like home runs, right. that's about as disastrous as you can do. Like that's, I mean, that's astonishing. Yeah, and and obviously for whatever reason, um, real control problems there in that game, and and fewer control problems for Hanson as the tournament went along. And anybody can have a bad day or a bad inning or a bad game or whatever. Uh, it's how you respond to it that's important. But that's yeah, I mean that she clearly was for whatever reason uh, wasn't ready to pitch in that first game, uh, and and. Being able to figure that out, either as a player or as a coaching staff, before you send the person out there, is a good skill to have. You uh, and the pitcher is the key to the softball team, and if they they have to have a good sense of self, how am I feeling today? And if you know, it's and it's one thing if your warm up is good and you're you know you're feeling like you're you can be all right, your control is good. To go out and for some reason it just deserts you as you're walking out to the circle in the first. I mean, I don't. In the first inning. I don't blame any, but like first, first pitch, first game, first inning, like put Stevie Hansen out, like that makes total sense to me. Yeah, like, absolutely. Well, like of course you do that. Like if they, if Lombardi didn't do that, I would say that something's like deeply weird and wrong. Um, yeah, because she's like, the returning ace of the staff. I mean, yeah, I don't exactly. Think there's, any, there's no argument about that. I don't think. It's just like, what, you know, I don't know. That's something that, you know, between Stevie and her maker, you know, yeah. why, you know, it was just like just total garbage coming out of her, um, out of her hand. Uh, I don't know. I'm glad she settled down. It was just like, it was just crazy. But I mean, it definitely contributed, you know, the Oregon lost that one seven to three and it was real disappointing. But then they came back, you know, and they beat Wisconsin in the second game. And Wisconsin is a pretty good team. Um, yes. It was a pretty like, you know, it was four to two, you know, you, you, but like they controlled that game, you know, uh, uh, you know, obviously you want to see like, you know, the, the mercy rule or something like that, but I mean, it's about right. as complete a game as you're going to get otherwise. Yeah. Um, no, I, yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't ever felt like, oh my God, you know, this is going to be a nail biter and what, you know, we've got to hold them here or whatever. They, they never seem to be in a lot of trouble against Wisconsin. Well, and then the other thing is, you know, between that and frankly, even against Maryland, like with the exception of that, like awful start to the game, um, uh, Maryland and then that Wisconsin game, which I, you know, again, was sort of a, you know, wire to wire to control. And then as we talked about uh, earlier, um, the game against Oklahoma State in which, you know, yes, they didn't score a run, but like, um, you know, they limited a really potent Oklahoma State uh, team to three runs um, is that like. 
what really shines about this team and, and like, look, man, I just the, 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 the structure of softball and, you know, baseball too, um, is such that like defense doesn't really win games. Pitching wins games and, mm-hmm. you know, batting wins games. Defense is tertiary at best, but athletes are how you put, you know, defense on the field and Oregon's got really great you know, athletes, um, yes. really great athletes. Um, you know, they have a decided athletic advantage over, you know, just about everybody that they, um, play. Um, and that's saying something playing in the pac 12 and it's saying yeah, something it really playing is. against, you know, the quality of teams that they routinely challenge themselves against in their out of conference matchups. And, um, like it was very clear that, you know, they're, you know, their fielding is, you know, excellent. And they were not allowing like, you know, they're, they're not allowing, you know, goofball runs, you know, like you really got to earn it against Oregon's defense. Um, and, uh, you know, their fielding, you know, aspect of their defense and and like against like real serious challenge. Um, and that's good. It was good to see that continue. Um, you know, I don't think that's going anywhere. Um, and I doubt it ever, ever will. It's just, you know, the nature of Oregon softball is really high quality athletes who, who do not let you get easy runs. Yeah. And there, you know, there's a ton of familiar names that are back this season, exactly the kind of athlete that you're talking about. You don't, you see plays made in the infield and the outfield and and frankly, even at catcher that you don't see a a lot of teams make Um, Mm -hmm. very athletic stabs at the ball and things of that nature. You see Oregon batters with real speed who take an extra base that's uh, that's unexpected that other teams probably wouldn't try to take. So yeah, I mean, I think they've got a real advantage there. They've got to they've got to get their bats going a little bit more to to help on the offensive side of things to release that athleticism. But on the on the defensive side of the ball, they they're going to be solid. I think very solid the entire season. And then the fourth game, they just clobbered Ole Miss, um, which is, you know, which is good. I'm not sure how good Ole Miss is going to be this year, but like historically the SEC has been, you know, the second best um, softball conference, um, right. you know, top to bottom anyway. You know, the the, the 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 Big 12 usually has like some of the best teams at the very top, but in terms of like top to bottom, um, you know, the SEC, like every one of their teams is pretty good. So, I, yes. you know, I expect, you know, throttling Ole Miss like that, you know, ain't nothing, um, you know, beat, beat them nine to three, you know, the bats really came alive on that one, you know, one point they're up eight to one, you know, mm-hmm. in that game, which is really like almost mercy ruled them. Yeah. Um, and then they, you know, of all the teams that you sort of expect them to have an easy time against, they played North Dakota state in the final right. game, um, and kind of had a battle on their hands. How, how did that one go? Yeah, it was an interesting, an interesting matchup, as you say. You you sort of expect because it's a lower division that you're probably going to have um, a, a little easier time of it. But the Ducks struggled a little bit, frankly. I mean, they they got into a lead against North Dakota State um, in, through the the top of the fourth, but then North Dakota State came back and went ahead uh, in the bottom of the fourth. And at that point, you're kind of going, what the heck is going I mean, I'm sorry, the top of the fourth. At that point, you're going, what in the world is going on here? Um, and and so they're down, and now you've got to figure out a way to win this game. And, and again, somebody uh, who didn't, uh, Taya Bird, who didn't play a ton in this uh, tournament came in and hit a game winning, what turned out to be uh, a game winning home run and uh, in the bottom of the six. So, I mean, they, they, uh, you know, did, did what they had to do to win. And that's one of the things that also happens a lot in sports is you may not be having the best game or the best day or whatever it is, but you find a way to get it done despite that. And that's what they did against North Dakota state. Uh, yeah. You know, but it was interesting because to, to me, the interesting thing was again, the pitching, um, you know, because this is one where I think Breedlove started the game. Um, and then Sokolowski, uh, relieved her, but then like, I think, you know, a big part of the reason why the bison, you know, took the lead in that game was a couple of wild pitches, like not just mm-hmm. one, but I think two yeah. wild pitches from Sokolowski where I was sort of like, Oh my God, not this again, you know? 
We already did um, this in the first game. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. I was just like, you know, just like, not just like, you know, not just pitching that's winning you games or like, you know, pitching that's failing to control teams, but just like, you know, like out of control pitching, like yes. this is a problem. Um, but, you know, and so, you know, thank God, you know, that, you know, uh, a bird comes in, hits, you know, the Ducks first home run of the season. Um, but like, I, I don't know, one, one of the commenters on your article was ready to write the epitaph for the Ducks season already. <laughs> Um, after five games, I don't know if you're ready to do that, but like, you know, do you think the comment is fair that like that, that this team is like, Oh, well, same as last season, you know, like pretty good fielding team, decent batting teams, not going to get over the hump because the pitching's not there. Do you think that's fair? Well, I, you know, I think it's, uh, it's fair to question it. I, I don't, I'm not ready to write the season off because I think all of these players will get better as the season progresses especially the pitching staff as they get more work against live batting and, and people that are, you know, opponents as opposed to, you know, trying to throw to a spot in the gym or, or trying to, um, you know, strike out one of their teammates or something. Um, I mentioned in the article, and I think I mentioned at the top of the podcast discussion that some of the problems that Oregon had last year are, were in evidence, not, all the time, but in a few of the, a couple of these games uh, were in evidence in this tournament. The question is going to be whether or not though, you know, some of it is like the, on the offensive side, not being able to string together enough hits to score. Well, most of the time they did against Oklahoma state, they didn't, but I mean, that's, you know, you're not going to play Oklahoma state every week. Um, So you can't, you're going to, you're going to see good pitching, um, excellent pitching from some folks, certainly in the, once we get into conference play, but I I think, you know, with another year's experience, and as I said, there's a lot of familiar names in this article and in this lineup who we know from past experience are good hitters and they should be a little bit better even this year, just because they've got another year of experience and, and workouts uh, under their collective belts. So I'm not ready to write them off yet. I'd like to see, um, it, you, you know, you mentioned this teams that you think you probably should run rule or something, but um, I'd like to see more consistent and better offensive production and fewer sort of innings that kind of go sideways on pitchers on their own problems. It's not, it isn't that they're throwing gopher balls down the middle that somebody's taking over the fence. It's that they're throwing wild pitches or they're throwing, uh, you know, balls that the catcher can't get, or they're walking or hitting batters. That's a problem. Um, if that kind of stuff is going to persist, that's going to cause problems down the road because you're just giving the other team something that they haven't earned really. So the hope is that the pitching staff is going to not have a lot of innings like two or three that they had in this tournament where the pitcher just didn't seem to be able to get control of the ball for some reason. Well, stay tuned to Addicted to Quack for uh, softball coverage throughout the year. We're all big softball fans uh, here on the staff, um, and I, I really enjoyed your article um, summing up the, the Puerto Vallarta uh, tournament. Um, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll talk some men's hoops. All right. Uh well, as we uh, are recording this on Wednesday night, uh, the Oregon men are uh, tied up with uh, Washington in Seattle uh, in the first quarter. We uh, we have to record is it still early. zero zero. Uh, it was four to four as I'm looking over okay, right now. Right. We we can't wait till the end of the game to comment on it because it'd be so late, and I know that both of us are exhausted from our Valentine's Day activities. <laughs> exactly. Um. So uh, let's uh, let's talk about the uh, the the uh, L.A. games last week. Um, uh, you know, they started out uh, dominating USC, um, uh, which was, uh, you know, a pretty encouraging performance to watch. Um, 
you know, I, uh, it seems like, uh, Infali Dante is, uh, back to full health, or at least I hope so. Um, you know, went eight from 11 from the floor, um, and all inside stuff too, uh, which I, you know, I really like to see. Um, uh, I thought it was a pretty decent performance from Will Richardson, um, which, you know, seems to be essential uh to their you know a good performance um hit every one of his free throws and took the most free throws on the sh- on the team which is usually indicative of you know good inside performance um and uh and uh, the other thing you know that i really like to see was um was continuing this sort of experimentation, you know, so like Cousinard, uh, got the start and, and played fairly well. Um, uh, Biddle is, uh, you know, continuing to get the start. I really like that both, you know, Biddle and Dante are, uh, you know, are starting at the same time. It's a lot of, you know, big man stuff. Um, I think, you know, the mid season ass chewing that Dana where, or Dana Altman gave to Clell where, uh, seems to have been effective as that guy's getting minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I, you know, continue to sort of be disappointed that Quincy Garrier is not um, particularly productive, even though he's getting a lot of minutes um, off the bench. Um, I don't really understand what that's about. Uh, but overall, you go ahead. I was, yeah, was going to say that, you know, uh, Garrier is one of these guys who is who who is uh, v- extremely athletic and he's pretty quick and he's got some bulk but he loves to shoot three pointers and yeah. you know, most of the time there he's not effective. He was one for three in this game, which is mm. certainly decent shooting, but he's not the guy I would expect would be taking three pointers for Oregon. He's the kind of, to me, he's the kind of guy that could post up whoever's guarding him is going to be in trouble if he posts him up and, uh, and tries to take him to the hoop because he's got the brawn, to make that happen inside. And it would, you know, I mean, Oregon's got plenty of inside presence. Don't get me wrong. They don't, I'm not sure if they need another person inside uh, with the way that uh, Dante's playing, but I just don't think he's an effective outside scorer and you, you should probably be playing to his strengths there. Well, you know, Ultimately, I don't really think this game was decided on Oregon's offensive performance. I think Oregon's offensive performance against USC was pretty much exactly as expected. Mm-hmm. You know, like they, um, you know, they, they, hey, look, just look at the numbers. You know, they should yeah. shoot a little better than 50% from the floor. They shot exactly 33% from the three-point line. They shot uh, 89% from the charity stripe. It was exactly what you expect, you know, like. Um, right. you know, nothing, given nothing spectacular there. Yeah, so. exactly. Like it's a pretty even distribution across the players. There's not much of a difference, you know, for, uh, you, you know, between the halves, like, um, you get pretty much the performance that you expect given, you know, the, the number of shots taken, like all, you know, the, the entirety of the box score looks exactly like an offensive performance that, that that's like neither, you know, spec, you know, n- that is not remarkable in either direction. What's remarkable about the game is it was an excellent defensive performance. Yes. And, and from watching the game, I don't really think it's because USC was like ice cold and was bricking shots. I think Oregon was just playing a pretty stifling defense. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah, I saw a lot more in this game, uh, you know, um, pressure brought at the right times, including when guys were taking shots and a, a ton of ch- really challenging uh even inside shots and smart challenging inside shots where guys were straight up and down, not reaching in or reaching over or any of that stuff and, and caused USC, I think to miss a ton of these shots that they missed because of defensive pressure, both good rotation onto outside shooters. And then again, this pretty good interior defense, I thought where, you know, they didn't give up the foul. Right, they didn't yeah. didn't allow the guy to jump in there and and try to whack him or something. It it worked out very well. I thought the the interior defense, and that's what it takes. And that's the you know the hallmark kind of of Dana Altman teams in the past has been that kind of high intensity defensive effort. 
And that's one of the things that this team has sort of been on and off about this season. Some of the nights that, and I, it, some of it's the opponent, don't get me wrong, but, but some of the nights they just haven't seemed to have the intensity on defense uh, over long periods of time. And what, what, that's one of the things that I think we'll, we'll see when we talk about the UCLA game a little bit. Well, I, what was especially, you know, what seemed very clear was that, you know, they were putting them into a trap where um, they were forcing USC into low productivity at perimeter shooting, um, both beyond the three point arc and just like long, long range twos. You know, they were not letting them have it inside. And then USC was just not hitting them, you know, from from depth. And, and as and the other thing is that as USC fell further and further behind, they were shooting more and more from the outside and making them less and less, you know, it's like, you know, they, they, they fell into a trap where like the farther behind they got the worst they were shooting and, and which put them farther behind and the worst they were shooting, which is like, you know, yeah, right. It's like this, you know, this virtue, virtuous circle. Um, and like, yeah, that, that's the defensive performance that you want to see. And like I said, it was like, it, it, it definitely, like I, I have definitely called out games where I thought that, you know, Oregon's defensive performance wasn't really Oregon's defensive performance. It was just the opponent had super cold hands. I really don't think that's what I was seeing when I was watching that. I mean, a little, I, I, I didn't think that, you know, it's not like they were like super hot hands and Oregon just completely cooled them down. You know, they were, they weren't, you know, it wasn't like that. They, they didn't come, they weren't tremendous, you know, that night or anything, but like, but you know they weren't like they weren't missing wide open shots you know like like it really was like a defensive performance in which Oregon was forcing them into low percentage shots and they were right. sure enough missing those shots which is like yeah man do that um <laughs> so like i you know exactly. overall thought that was a pretty encouraging performance and then they go play UCLA right. and like you know they played UCLA uh in Los Angeles earlier in the season, pretty tight. You know, I, I I thought this was going to be a pretty competitive game. I overall actually thought it was a fairly competitive game. I don't know. What did you feel like when you were watching this game? Yeah. I mean, again, again, you know, going back to uh, what, what I mentioned earlier, the first half was a, was great. Uh, Oregon led by three at halftime, you know, not up like a blowout, but I mean, you're playing a very, very good basketball team and they came out with, you know, pretty good defensive intensity, giving 30 points is not a ton of points to give up, uh, in, you know, 20 minute halves. So I thought that, you know, they came out and played very well in the first half. And then, uh, you know, there was a fall off in the second half for whatever reason. Um, and they gave up 40 points instead of 30. And, you know, so that's, that's what I saw is just a a slight reduction defensive intensity uh, in that second half from Oregon. Oh man. I I really feel like, I I mean, I thought the defensive performance was fine. I thought, I mean, or at least, I mean, you're right that UCLA scored more points in the second half. It really came down to, they made like two, two or three more three pointers than mm-hmm. they quote yeah, unquote that's should have, you yeah, know, they went like, five for seven in the second half on three. Yeah, quarters. I know. It's really like, but I mean, like, that's why I set up. That's why I, I talked at length uh, about the previous game where it's like, that was their defensive strategy. They were forcing them into what ought to be low and and like that's what they were doing in the first half right they Mm -hmm. forced them into a bunch of three-point shots and sure enough they only shot 25 percent from the three-point line you know below what the 33 percent threshold is you know in the first half so you know they pursued the same defensive strategy and ucla you know fell into the trap they were doing what oregon wanted them to and then just ucla hit those shots which is like What are you going to do? You know, but overall, overall, even in the second half, Oregon's defensive performance was, was forcing them into low percentage shots. Uh, You know, they, they caused UCLA to shoot 41% from the field which in the second half, which is actually lower than what they shot in the first half, which was 42%. Other than mm-hmm. the defensive, you know, the defense was playing just fine. It's like, yeah, they they hit like two or three more three-pointers than they should have 
Um, you know, in second half, because three pointers are worth three points, you know, like, Hey, there's your margin, but like, I can't really fault him for the defensive permanence. What I can fault him for is that like that, you know, Oregon's, you know, offense just wasn't dropping the buckets the way that, you know, like if your opponent is going to drop that kind of threes, then like you need to be scoring more than 30 points, you know, in the second half. And they just weren't right. Like, you know, like they, you know, that was my problem is Oregon only shot 42%, you know, like the, 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 in, in the second half and they needed to be shooting better than that. Like, and, and really, you know, to me it came down to like, you know, it was another game in which Will Richardson sort of disappeared. Um, yeah, yeah very poor game from him. You know, he scores five points on eight shots, which is just like, okay, yeah. Will, you know, um, yeah. you know, he got, a, he got outscored by Khalil Ware off the bench. You know, yeah. he got yeah. scored. He got outscored by Keyshawn Bartholomew off of the bench. Like he got yeah, outscored by Rivaldo Soares, who like, I have no idea why that guy is starting, you know, like, yeah. and, and honestly, like, you know, you can't like, I sort of hate this. I was, I was talking about this with Adam last week Um, where, you know, we, we tend to dump on Will Richardson too much. Cause he's sort of like the quarterback of the team. And like, you know, in my opinion, like it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for him to perform well in order for the team to perform well. And like, it's just too easy to say, well, he didn't perform well. And so therefore the rest of the team is off the right. hook. The rest of the team's not off the hook. You know, no. hey, hey, Nate Biddle, if you're going to start, um, you need to not score zero points. Right. Now, he only played 11 minutes. Um, you know, yeah, which was kind of a funny, I mean, it's funny that that's all he got out of that game. Um, I, you know, and, and I don't know why he was, they never explained why he played such few minutes, but that, you know, typically yeah. he's been in as a starter, obviously you're going to be expected to, play. but I mean, it basically but. Bartholomew and Gary split his, you know, remaining minutes and they combined for nine points, like guys, that's mm-hmm. not enough. Um, yeah. You know, like none of those guys are off the, like I said, I don't know why Rivaldo Soros is, is starting. Um, you know, Dante hit 13, you know, given, given what he represents in the team, that's fine. Cousinard had 19. Okay. Good for you guy. Uh, yep. he pr- probably shot a few more three pointers than he should have given. He was a bit cold, but whatever. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, okay. So, but having said all of that, uh, you know, will, you can't play every minute of the game, score five points. Like, right. Yeah. In a game you lose by seven, where you got to have it in order to make the tournament, you can't be scoring five points. Like, right? You know, and only take eight shots. I mean, yeah, he, exactly. Yeah, he's, like, he's a key part of the of the offense, not only generating for other people, but you know, being involved in the shooting part of it as well. And eight shots for you know your starting guy in that spot is not a huge number by any stretch of the imagination. So, th- I mean, that's my point is like, uh, you know, I-, I didn't mean to slam the door in your face or anything, but I feel no, like you, right. you, you hold a team like UCLA to 70 points and, and, and under 42% shooting from the floor. And, you know, y- 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 like y- you ought to, uh, that ought to be enough for your offense to win. Like I take it all back. <laughs> I mean, there's. I mean, there's some other things to say. I do feel like, uh, you know, I do feel like UCLA probably wound up at the charity stripe more often than they should have. We don't need to, you know, talk too much about that. But I mean, they wound up with 17 points off of free throws, which is um, higher than the average number in a men's college basketball game. Yes. Um. But look, you limit UCLA to 70 points that that you have set yourself, your defense has set yourself up to win. Um, and, and, you know, uh, hey, you got to you got to capitalize. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was a close game. Uh, again, there are no moral victories or, or uh, quality losses or anything like that. But, you know, they were in the game and they had opportunities even relatively late. But again, like you said, you said they hit a couple of uh, three pointers and got to the charity stripe a bunch. And that's it's hard to overcome that. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, this is true. But let's say those things don't happen. Let's say they only get 12 points from the 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 free throw line and let's say that they you know they only you know that rather than shooting five for seven in the second half from the three-point line let's say that they shoot uh you know uh, three for seven so mm-hmm. I, I just took uh, uh eight points away from them and now oregon has won the game uh yeah. they win the game right. 63 to to 62 uh would you be how happy would you be with that performance well, a win, a win is always, you know, much better. And, and I, you know, I absolutely would be over the moon because it would put, it would have put the team in the position to, you know, get into the top tier. I, I, don't, I don't mean uh, the result of the game. I mean, the performance oh, in that game. Well, obviously the, the, that's a great, that is a, that would be a very good defensive performance overall. Yeah, I think you would uh, be scoring, saying that would be a great scoring, defensive performance, yeah, but you'd be saying that's a yucky offensive performance. Yeah, it wouldn't have changed. The it wouldn't have changed how anemic the offense was at times. It would have, um, you know, obviously been a, a fantastic scoring defense um, performance by Oregon at that if they'd been able to win by one point. Um, you know, and like I said earlier, you do what you need to do on off nights to win games. And that would have been an example of where they did the minimum, but they did it. Yeah. Despite the fact that the offense was a little off and Richardson was a little off, they still managed to win the game. That would have been, uh, you know, a po- I mean, that would, yeah. I mean, that would have been your takeaway. I'm just saying that like the way that you would have analyzed the game would have been like, oh man, this offense needs work. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's you know, true. so so just so just saying, like, well, some fluky stuff happened with UCLA's three point and free throw shooting performance, and so therefore we don't need to worry about this game. Like, I don't think that that's you know, I don't yeah. think that's on point analysis. But it's it's amazing to me that you know, I mean, the, as we noted, the game before, what, they're well over seventy points against USC, and that's not to say that UCLA is not a better defensive club, maybe than USC is, but still, I don't really think UCLA is a great defensive club. That, uh, yeah, that, that's a big drop in offensive performance, uh, especially on your home court. For no, I, I, you know, if and if that's if what you say is true there's even less excuse to have that kind of an offensive performance. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what, that's really the, th- I mean, the story of the season is just how like wildly inconsistent this team yeah. is, you yep. know, they are. And I, I don't really have an answer for why that is. I mean, who, who, who possibly could. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's enough about that. Let's uh, take a break. Uh, when we come back. We'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, Oregon's new football hire. Actually, that was probably not a great way to tease that because Oregon just hired. <laughs> just uh, had another one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I well, I, uh, so I suppose I should explain all of this. Uh, Oregon just hired Alik Terry um, to be their new offensive line coach. I will be writing about Alik Terry because he coached uh, Hawaii's offensive line in 2021. I managed to acquire about half of that film, so I'll be reviewing that, and we'll have an article about his offensive line uh, performance that season. Um, in a in a couple of weeks here, but uh, before that, they hired Chris Hampton, um, who was the defensive coordinator at Tulane in 2022. Uh, I wrapped up my film study on that, and will be publishing that article on Thursday morning. Uh, should go up about half an hour after this podcast does. So uh, <laughs> I don't know who's going to be listening to this podcast as a teaser of th- that article, but here we go. Um, uh, it was uh, it was certainly a fun project to watch all of Tulane's film. You know, the thing that was most remarkable about it is just like to uh, Tulane had a very good defense in advanced statistics. Uh, you know, they wound up ranked number twenty eight in F plus advanced stats, which considering in the two four seven team talent composite, they were the number seventy five. You know. Uh, most talented team, you know, that means that they're punching about 50 ranks above their weight class, which is about the same differential as Will Stein did on offense. You know, the, the offensive coordinator mm-hmm. that Oregon just hired um, from UTSA, that was also, you know, a, you know, almost exactly the same numbers. I think it was like 76 and 26, um, something like that. Uh, 
So, you know, that was number one that I, you know, that, that jumped off the page was or jumped off the screen was like, wow, the, you know, these guys, you, you could see that it wasn't super talented. Like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, I, you just see it like they were not just not yeah. running as fast or hitting as hard as even some of the bad Pac-12 defenses that I watch every week. Um, uh, but they were just super well coached. And that, you know, that's the sort of thing that you're, that's what you're hiring Chris Hampton to do. Um, you know, just, just super excellently well coached. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I will note, um, Chris Hampton was the, so uh, the last two years he was the defensive coordinator and apparently only the defensive coordinator, like they had dedicated okay. position coaches for each of the, you know, uh, the, the spots, um, unlike, you know, at Oregon where he's going to be the co DC and safeties coach. And I don't know how, like, uh, I don't really know how much of the DC he's going to be. Although there are some rumors that like, maybe he's going to be the real DC. I don't know. Uh, I really don't like on, on the possibility that that's what's going to happen. I figured I'd review his abilities as DC. Um, Cause why not? Um, but anyway, the other thing that I can report is one of the sort of secret weapons that Tulane had is that all of his starting safeties were super seniors. Um, oh. and, uh, and prior to Chris Hampton being the defensive coordinator at Tulane, you know what his job was? No, he was the safeties coach at Tulane <laughs> for four years. And that? he was the one who was basic, who recruited and developed those guys. So, you know, Hey, there you go. Um, yes. So, like, I think probably his credentials as a safeties coach is pretty good. He was also a safety himself. He played at South Carolina. He was pretty good. Um, and he's young, too. He was playing in 2007. Um, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And he's been a DB coach. He was he was a DB coach for 10 years um, before he got the, the D.C. job. So this, you know, this will be his 13th year as an on-field coach. 16th, if you count his three um, grad assistant years. Um uh, so anyway, that, that, that's his history. Um, the other thing that jumped off the film, uh, when I was watching it is, uh, you know, that where it became immediately obvious, like, oh, this is why Lanning hired him is they were running a tight front. Um, and, and when I did, uh, my whole, you know, project last year about all of Dan Lanning's hires of all the new coaches, um, it was like, oh, every one of the coaches that he hired, like every single one, you know, Tosh LaFoy and, uh, and Powledge and, uh, and, and, uh, Tuiati, um, uh, uh, all of these guys, you know, oh, it's mint front or tight front stuff. Um, and it's like, well, I get it. You know, this is, these, these are all guys who run the same defensive structure. It's not like sometimes, you know, not sometimes, most of the time when I am reviewing a Pac-12 uh, team, as I do, you know, for every team every year, and I'm, I'm seeing how coaches assemble their coaching staff. It's like, they just grab whoever they think is the best available position coach on the market. Um, or maybe just the best guy they think they can get or the best guy that they can afford or the best guy that they're drinking buddies with or whatever, um, or golfing buddies or whatever they do. I don't know. Um, and, and like, and just say like, well, this is what we do here. So I need you to like, you know, figure out our thing. Um, yeah, buddy. Learn this. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and no, it really is very clear that at least on the defensive side of the ball, Lanning's approach has been like, all of you guys need to know the same scheme, which is my scheme, which is, the, you know, the scheme the the mint front and the tight front are slightly different. The tight front came first. The mint front is sort of an evolution of it or a tweak of it. It has to do with where you line up the nickel, um, and OLB, whether you do it on the basis of, um, uh, 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 a wide side of the, you know, uh, field boundary versus strong side of the offensive formation, weak side of the offensive formation is a little more technical than we need to get into. They're essentially the same defensive structure. Um, so, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, and, and certainly the overall defensive philosophy is the same, which is, um, basically in modern college football, the, um, the pass hurts you more than the run. So you need to devote your maximum resources that you can afford to stopping the pass, but don't go full Kwiatkowski, um, and, and just like, you know, play your safeties, you know, 50 yards deep, you know, right. like, and get run all over. You still 
need to do something to stop the run. And so what they do to stop the run is they get three just jumbo, super big defensive linemen. And what they sacrifice with those three big defensive linemen playing a four I zero four I configuration. So that what that means is they have um, two defensive ends who are playing just shaded, just inside the tackle. And then a nose who's right over the center and the nose two gaps. So he's playing both of the a gaps. So both to the left and to the right of the center and the two big defensive ends are controlling those B gaps. They're one gapping the B gap. And so that with three guys, you're controlling the four interior gaps, but, here's the deal they're not really trying to get to the quarterback or anything all they're doing is sort of like blorp they're like eating up that space and they're just huge dudes the that you get i'm not saying that they're like you know blocks of concrete you know with right. with bricks between their ears still, or anything still athletes yeah they're yeah they're, they're yeah and i'm not trying to call them dumb or, or, or anything i'm just saying that like they're not the, the the scheme deliberately does not call for them to attempt interior penetration um and and thereby getting out of position. The scheme asks them to stay in place and simply clog up those interior run lanes. And so out of your 11 available personnel, you just use three in order to do that. And that causes the, you know, so the back can't get through and the back has to bounce outside. And Meanwhile, your other eight dudes are able to play back against the pass because the pass can hurt you more. The back then has to bounce outside. Those dudes now have time to come down and kill the run. That's called the spill and kill run philosophy. So you are effectively not getting run over, but you're not able to use your interior defensive lineman in order to pressure the quarterback. The pressure on the quarterback is coming from your outside linebacker. So that was the other cool thing that was uh, that I got to watch about the two lane is that in addition to having super seniors as their defensive backs, they had uh, a couple of really good OLBs, you know, playing that jack outside linebacker position, which is a super versatile position. And here's the other cool thing is that in addition to being sort of the pass rush guy, he's also the simulated pressure guy. So he's, you know, the guy who maybe he drops out into pass coverage and they rush an ILB as part of their, so they don't really blitz, right? They don't bring five on pass rush very often. Um, instead, what they do is the, you know, maybe they'll drop the, uh, the OLB and they'll rush an ILB or the rush of safety or the rush they'll cap blitz um or some weird thing like that um and uh or they'll have creepers or they're you know it's fun uh i put examples of my article you get to watch um but like basically uh, again they are trying to put as many dudes into coverage as possible while still having okay rush defense um not terrible rush defense that's washington's problem right like we all watched right. washington while Kwiatkowski was there for years where they were like you know it, it's sort of like that philosophy taken to such such a far extreme that teams would just run all over them and you know that that was it you know game over for the teams that had the discipline and size to run all over them so they're like okay let's dial that back one notch you know let's let's still have an okay run defense but but you know but you know we're really what we're doing here is trying to stop the pass um and and also we're going to try to stop the pass we're trying to generate a, a pass rush without blitzing um, or, without, or without blitzing too much and so do Tulane under Chris Hampton really you know that in particular like he doesn't blitz on passing downs that was also really cool like th they do blitz but they blitz on standard downs as like a surprise like it's second mm -hmm. and five it's first and ten it's second and eight you know like surprise blitz not what a lot of teams do like Michigan state. I've had to study them a bunch of times over the years. Like they, they're the other way around. They're like, we play our standard defense on standard downs and on passing downs, we bring everybody, you know, Tulane's like the other way right. around. They blitz as a surprise and on passing downs, you know what they do? They don't blitz. They don't even rush four. They rush three. They rush three on passing downs. They usually drop the OLB and they 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 play, you know, they drop eight into coverage. And then they just sort of bet that the quarterback's not going to find anybody to throw to and he's gonna gonna make some dumb mistake, or the offensive line is gonna commit a holding foul, and now it's gonna be third and super long. And you know what? It's super duper mega effective because um, you know what? Uh Tulane's third and long uh, uh, success rate is 83. Uh, wow. I'll tell you, 
83.33%. Wow. On 83.33% of third and longs that they face, the opponent fails to convert. And in fact, (laughs) if you exclude the USC game, because they played USC in the Cotton Bowl, USC gets almost half (laughs) of all (laughs) third and long conversions. And they had the number one F plus defense last year. If you exclude the F, the, the USC game, it, it jumps to 88%. (laughs) Like basically if you got into third and long against Tulane, that's it. You're done. Um, um, th- that's like, it's basically what Tulane was teaching people last year is that like, you are not playing third and long correctly. <laughs> um, <laughs> you need to, you need to get super conservative and just like, just back out, just back out. Quarterback's yeah. not going to find anybody. Even Caleb Williams wasn't finding people. In fact, I deliberately put in some clips of Caleb Williams screwing up and throwing interceptions against <laughs> rush three on third and long. Um, nice. It was fun. Um, I even put in a clip of uh, uh, a clip compilation of, of Rashid Wallace. You'll you'll understand why when you read the article. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, uh, like uh, uh, you know, and so I guess philosophically, you know, Oregon fans may react to this by saying, "Wait a minute, Hith, it sounds like you're describing a bend don't break defense," and and the answer to that is like, "Well, yeah, dude." Um, yeah. But like, yeah, they bent and they didn't break, and they had yeah, the as long as they don't, as long as they don't break, that's the thing. I mean, I don't mind bend, don't break, just don't break. You know. Well, here there is an interesting thing that I found um, from running the drive numbers, you know, the the per possession numbers, which is um, the following: uh, they uh, the. Um, so uh, full field drives, right? So so defined as when the opponent takes over at their own 40 or further back, meaning they have at least 60 yards to go. You, you got to use full field drives when you're defining possessions, because if you include short field drives, it throws the numbers off. Okay, um, sure. Anyway, full field drives. Um, uh, opponents averaged 642 plays per full field drive, which is an interesting number. It means the Tulane wasn't really forcing a whole ton of three and outs um, or giving up a whole lot of three play touchdown drives. Um, in fact, they only gave up one the entire season outside of garbage time, uh, three play touchdown drives. Um, wow. uh, 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 I believe it was against USC. Go figure. Um, yeah. However, of full field uh, of drives of full field touchdown drives that now it, it goes up to 9.48. In other words, if you were going to score a touchdown against Tulane on a full field drive, you needed three more plays than average in order to do it. Another way to put it is that if you had between three and nine plays on a drive, you were only likely to score a touchdown at about a 21% rate. However, the instant you hit that 10th play, if you could get your drive to a 10th play, then you were going to score a touchdown at a 33% rate. Hmm. And do you understand what I'm describing to you that like, if you could, if you could take, if you like Tulane was daring you to march the entire field, right? Right. Like what I'm trying to describe is a defense that, that, that dares you to march the field and bets that you're going to screw up. It's bets. Sometimes in the next six, six or seven plays, you're going to six, seven, eight, nine plays that you're eventually going to get into third and long and then they are absolutely going to hammer your dumb ass on third and long and get off the field because they do that at an 88% rate, better than 88% rate. But if you call them on it, if you you know uh, pick up that gauntlet and actually hit that 10th play or go longer than 10th play, now the numbers flip, and now you're actually getting to be more likely to score a touchdown. And I documented that in my article, too, where if you actually punch through and get into the red zone, yeah, you're you, you, there's a pretty good likelihood of you scoring a touchdown. So evidence of that includes, number one, what I just said, that if you go over 10 plays, you're probably going to score a touchdown. Number two, if you get a short field off of like a turnover or, or a short field, you're probably going to get a touchdown against Tulane's defense. And number three is, and this is just going off of raw stats, they gave up um, – uh, if the opponent got into the red zone, Tulane gave up touchdowns at a 61% rate, which was um, 69th nationally, which wow. is 
like yeah it's not great it's it is out of line with the rest of their defensive raw defensive stats um the rest of their raw defensive stats would not predict them being 69th in reds opponent red zone touchdown rate um yeah that, it doesn't it usually f- f- because, because it's you've got such a short around. field Good and people. so yeah so few it, places to go with the ball right it's and harder so, to score what I, the connection that I make, you know, between those numbers and just watching the film, I'm going to watch every snap that they took, uh, um, was, is that like, they're just not a very, it's just not a super talented team in particular, mm-hmm. their cornerbacks are not real great. Um, in fact, actually I would go so far as to say their cornerbacks are bad. Um, and, uh, it, and uh, and their interior rush defense is just like their efficiency numbers are not great. In fact, it was actually kind of interesting. Their their explosive play defense is phenomenal. They only allow about ten percent explosive plays, which is an elite number. They only allow um, uh, about six yards per pass attempt, which is a phenomenal number. They only allow about four point five yards per carry, which is an excellent number. They um they were tenth place in the country at allowing twenty plus yard gains, which is excellent. Oregon was number nine, by the way, uh, in twenty twenty two. So all of those are really excellent at preventing explosive plays. So they don't let you just quickly score, but their per play efficiency rate on my tally sheet, um, both the run and the pass, um, was only 57%, which is, that's an above average number, but 60% is a championship caliber number. It's actually very surprising to find a team that wins a conference championship, but is below 60% in either the run or the pass defense, much less both is I'm, I'm actually like genuinely surprised, but the reason is their explosive play defense was so good that like teams were never really getting into the red zone but if but if you got into the red zone you were going to score a touchdown um so so but like i sort of still think there's a silver lining for that coming to oregon because i think that you know what i sort of documented and i think that you know people can people can watch the clips that i put in my article is that like i think they can probably just observe the the general talent level and see that like well, Oregon has a much more talented defense than that. And I think right. they can also observe that like, oh, there's obviously fatigue issues because they are really only able to play like maybe 13 guys on defense. Like they really wow. can't rotate except for maybe like two or three positions. Um, and so like, of course, they start giving up touchdowns if you go on a 10 play drive because like those dudes were exhausted. Um sure. In other words, these are things that don't obtain when Hampton gets his hands on like an actually talented roster. Yeah. Um, at least with, that's what I'm. I, I, I should. Yeah, exactly. In a deep roster, you know, yes. which which like seems to be the case when he gets to Oregon. I, f- I feel like that's a logical inference and it's not just like hopeful or wishful thinking. Right. You know? Although I do hope that that is the case. <laughs> and, and um, wish. But, but I, I, yeah, you know, but I think, I, I, th- I think it's a logical inference to make, even though I, you know, I do wish that it is the case. Um, yeah. but yeah, like they're, they're, you know, in every other way that I break it down, it's like, they're just not, they're, they don't stuff teams. They don't just like shut teams down defensively. They don't have three and outs at a super high rate. Their stuff rate in terms of the run is not super high. They don't just like the, their sack rate is not super high. Um, like all all of these like hallmarks of an aggressive like shut you down defense which is like you know i studied georgia right you know right. like last year uh georgia has a shut you down defense you know you know all of those hallmarks are very high and tulane didn't have any of those um what tulane had was just the philosophy of like i'm gonna dare you to march the field and get off on third or get off the field on third down and yes and they did so yeah. Hooray, <laughs> you know, <laughs> combine yeah, that with an actually talented defense and Hey, you might be cooking with gas. Assuming well, yeah, that's, that's, still that's the thing. I mean, they did very well with, uh, he did very well at Tulane with really n- nothing more than the scheme working for him. Yeah. And, and with pl- a team that went two and 10 yeah, last year, right? Players that didn't necessarily live up to that what it went two like and 10 in 20 you, in, yeah, in 2021 yeah, exactly I mean. and then all they did or i don't know all they did but they they at least taught the scheme the second year better and they and the players bought into it and delivered 
That's it. I mean, 12 yeah. and two and a bowl victory is a pretty, pretty good uh, record. I would say. I mean, really their their schedule, like they were, they were in the team talent composite. They were only more talented than four of the 13 FBS uh, opponents that they played. Wow. They beat, they beat a power five champion, Kansas state, who was the only team besides Georgia who beat TCU last year. They beat uh, USC, who was a Power Five runner-up, and uh, and the let me make sure I phrase this properly. So the team talent composite I went through, and I found the six group of five teams who were the most talented. Uh, you know, group of five teams. Who let, let me see if I can name them all off the top of my head: uh, UCF, Cincinnati, uh, SMU, uh, South Florida. Um, uh, well, two more, they're both in the American conference and guess what? All six of those are teams that Tulane played and all six of those are teams that Tulane has a win against in 2022. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, literally the, and you know, as a G five team themselves, those are peer programs that Tulane is less talented than, um, uh, so literally uh, all six of the most talented G5 teams Tulane beat last year, plus a power five runner up, plus a power five um, champion. They, the, their two losses were their the regular season game against UCF, um, which you know was still a you know pretty close game, and then they lost kind of a head scratcher to Southern Miss, although it really didn't have anything to do with the defense. The defense played nominally in that game, just the offense just just the, the, the offense had a had a bad game. They didn't score enough points to win. Um, really, you know, and, and Southern Miss wasn't a good team at all last year, which is why it's such a head scratcher of game. But like I said, if you just look at the box score and, and, and you'll instantly believe me, it had nothing to do with the defensive performance. Um, like the, the offense just had a really bad night. There's turnovers and some bad stuff. Um, and they got their revenge against UCF. So like, I mean, basically as close as you can get to a perfect season while they were outgunned and coming off of a two and 10 2021 performance. Like, yeah, it was really impressive what they did. That's an upgrade. And, yeah. And, and Chris Hampton, you know, I think was pretty essential to that performance. Um, and so therefore it was, a, you know, it was a fun project watching this team and charting them out, coming up with all the numbers um, and more that are included in my article and a bunch of video clips. There's, uh, eight, I think, video compilations in my article, in which I illustrate all of these arguments. I, I hope the reader enjoys them. Please read and watch the article. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I never know what the right verb is for my articles. It's a multimedia <laughs> yeah. experience. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, definitely multimedia works for me. Uh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I try to, I, I try to make them like somewhat. You know, they're they're argumentative, but I try to like you know, educate people about football, you know, some football theory well, and, and illustrating, history. but you know, illustrating the points that you're making with video is, uh, you know, it, that's the way to teach people like myself who don't know that much about defensive schemes or, you know, offensive line blocking schemes and so forth. After you watch this, read a few of your articles and watch a few of these videos, you're going to go, oh, okay, I see what he's talking about here. And then you can go watch a game live and say, hey, Hitler talked about this. And look at what the, look at how this pulling guard is doing, whatever it is. And um, so, and educational is is a key part of that. I think uh, I do like you saying that. And and I have to say that that's always the most gratifying comment that I get um, in comment sections or on forums or whatever is is when people say like, "Hey, you made me sound like a genius at the you know watch party that I was at <laughs> yeah, because I was right. able to point at the screen and say, oh, the play's going to be this.' Uh, and it's like ah." Uh, the other thing I've noticed is that when you post your articles about Oregon opponents to the Reddit site, um, a, a lot of fans of the other teams seem to think that you've got a really good beat, beat on their team, or you're pointing out things about their team that they didn't notice. Yeah, I, as I, fans. You know, it's sort of a kick out of that. Yeah, you know, when I, I published my article about um, UTSA, uh, you know, I interviewed uh, Greg Luca, who writes for the San Antonio Express right. News, you know, an actual dead tree newspaper. Wow. Um, and uh, so he he had uh, some pretty nice things to say on Twitter about it, and he forwarded it to, to his followers. And and yeah, so I had a bunch of like two ten area code people who were like, "Wow, holy moly, <laughs> this was 
you know, it was really eye opening article to read and it's not even really about our team. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. And, uh, oh, the other uh, nice thing about this article, uh, even though I did, uh, unfortunately our interview with the Tulane person fell through. Um, although there's not a ton of background information that I needed to know about Tulane. So, um, uh, unlike UTSA where there was like a significant sort of scheme change that happened in the middle of the year. Right. And so it was really useful to interview Greg and sort of get some background information about why that happened. There was no such, um, event uh or anything similar to it that happened with Tulane it was very straightforward and I got you know really everything that I needed from the film so it was no real great loss to not have that interview although it did make me sad that it fell through um so that's unfortunate and, and I, I I won't get uh, that effect I won't get a bunch of New Orleansans to uh, to tell me uh wonderful or terrible things about me but anyway um uh, I, I will say about my article, I also took a bunch of shots at uh, a poor officiating and, uh, and ESPN, uh, 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 you know, the, those were always, you know, popular antagonists. So, Low hanging uh, fruit, one might yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think we'll wrap it up there. That's, that's enough for one night. Uh, do you have any, uh, parting words of wisdom for us? Slurms? I don't, I'm not sure I have any wisdom. Um, you know, the, the men's basketball is down one at halftime as we're recording. So hopefully they'll be able to, uh, get cracking here in the second half. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, and, uh, Washington appears to have repaired their basket. I don't Thank really God. understand, uh, why they weren't able to afford a working somewhere. circle of iron, but, uh, <laughs> luckily, uh, it, it, it 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 appears not to be raining in Seattle, or at least inside their stadium, uh, and it never rains on this podcast. Exactly. <laughs>